Let us pray. Father, we would hear, and we need you to give us ears to do that, to listen with renewed hearts. We would listen, and we would learn from you and your spirit and your word what that should lead us to do. We give you this time asking that we and others might see Jesus more clearly because we come together as your church to worship, to honor him, and to learn of him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you like titles and noticed, uh, this week's is It's Hard to Rest Mary at Christmas. M-E-R-R-Y. I don't remember when I was uh, old enough to pay attention as we sang Christmas hymns and carols uh, and sang God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen uh, to notice the punctuation uh, that the title is God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen and Ladies. Uh, It's not about a particular group of gentlemen that are merry. Uh, It's about the gospel calling all of us to rest merry of heart because of the gospel. It has a lot to do with do we really hear the grand significance of what the gospel is and how it changed the world and the trajectory of everyone And one of the other things I've thought a lot about in recent weeks, I pray God always brings it back to me, Uh, sometimes I think we are at a loss rather than a gain because uh, we all have, or most of us anyway, multiple copies of Scripture, Scripture on our phones, our iPads, our computers, uh, uh, but just because they're there doesn't mean we read them or listen to them. And one of the beauties of uh, the more difficult in some ways, simpler and better in others, uh, years that the people of God had so often is they had to come together to have the scripture read to them. So a good bit of what we're going to be doing, I didn't count the proportion, is uh, uh, looking at some chunks of the text, one of which we've looked at before, but then coming uh, to some application, but to let the text speak. So if you've got a copy of the Bible with you, Uh, turn to Luke uh, 1, verse 26, and uh, if you don't have a copy of the scripture, you can pretend that you're back in the day when the people of God are gathered and you listen as the word is read. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greeting, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be uh, since I'm a virgin? And she is a young Israelite woman, uh, probably in her teens, desiring to be obedient to God. She's betrothed, that uh, pretty much binding state of the first phase of marriage before the marriage actually happens and is consummated. And uh, how am I supposed to have a baby? And, and, and how is this going to happen? Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Somehow this child is holy, set apart, sacred. The Spirit of God uh, is involved. And indeed, he is the child, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived the Son. Is, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And how gracious of God. God is saying, if you want to know that this is really God doing things, not only am I appearing to you and saying this to you, but you know Elizabeth. And you know there have been no children. And in the normal course of things, there would be no children, but indeed there will be a child, John the Baptist, from Elizabeth, another entering in of God into the circumstance. Verse 38, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Boy, I would have loved to have known Mary's heart and emotions as she spoke those words of uh, a by faith confidence. And the angel departed from her. Verse 39, in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. She wanted to find out from Elizabeth what the angel had told her. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, John the Baptist, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And blessed are you this morning. If you believe that it will be fulfilled, what was spoken of the Lord. That celebrating Advent, uh, celebrating the birth of Jesus, his first coming at Christmas, uh, is 
a celebration that we know what he promised will yet come. And we wait. And we wait in faith for good reason. Mary and the shepherds, point one, they're hearing and doing. And we've just read what Mary heard from Gabriel and from Elizabeth. She's favored. The Lord is with her. She shouldn't fear. She's going to have a son, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is, in Greek, the same word as Joshua in Hebrew. Yahshua. Yah from Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Shua from a word that is involved with salvation. So Joshua and Jesus mean God is the Savior or God will save. So even the name that Mary is told to give this child that the Holy Spirit is putting in her is a marker, a statement, a promise of what God is doing. And he will be great, son of the Most High, Given the throne of his father David, his reign over Jacob, over Israel, will be forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end to it, the promises to David. Conceived of the Spirit, holy, the Son of God, all that happened to Elizabeth. Blessed she who believed what the Lord spoke is to be fulfilled. And what does Mary do? Part of it is the Spirit of God in her, giving her words, and she sings out what we call the Magnificat, that she magnifies the Lord. Look at chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. With whom is God pleased? Mary's telling us, uh, in part, what the scriptures point to a few paragraphs later. And his mercy, mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months, and then uh, returned uh, to her home. Did you notice Mary's Magnificat doesn't sound a whole lot like a Christmas carol? Uh, it's hard to read those words and just be filled immediately with sentimental feelings, and, and I'm not unsentimental. Mary Nell can tell you that. I cry at movies. Uh, I cry at a lot of things. But why are these the words that come to Mary? And, and how are they so deeply tied to Advent and, and to Christmas? Uh, I mean, mercy to those who fear God. 
God has in the past scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart, and he's going to do more of that. And he's brought down the mighty and exalted the humble. He's filled the hungry, the rich he sent away. And Mary explains it, what it's really all about in verse 40, 54 and 55. God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And Mary knows because of what Gabriel has told her and because of what she's been taught, no doubt, from the Scripture, that this is about what God has done for Israel and his faithfulness to the promises he has made to his covenant people, that he didn't choose Israel because they were great and magnificent. They were a nothing people come from a man who was called to leave everything from a pretty fancy city, Ur of the Chaldees, the New York City of the day, to go he knew not where, to an empty place, and to be one of the ones who helped fill it and fill the earth. And she says in verse 55, uh, he's helped his servant Israel, remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary's looking back to what's been promised to God's one day making all things right again as they were supposed to be in the garden. But she doesn't yet know, does she, God's sacrificial way of fulfilling its promises. She doesn't yet know what it's going to cost her, the pain that will come to her mother's heart, and what it will cost this son. Who would have thought the son of God come to earth, an amazing enough thought in himself, would end that walk on earth on a cross. The Old Testament events, successes and failures, promises and prophecies, all point to God and what God will do. But then, in chapter 2, the baby is born, and the shepherds and Mary and we with them hear even more things about this son. Luke 2, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. Have you noticed that seems to be a pretty normal response to angels? It's probably a good thing for us to be reminded about that when we get too much into our sentimental side. That when God visits, it's a time to fall on our face. When we really hear the Scripture... The first thing that comes isn't always comfort. Sometimes it's shaking and fear that holiness 
sacredness. Things beyond me have come into my presence. Fear not, the angel said to them, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior who is Messiah, the Lord, Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. In other words, you want to know if what I'm saying to you, shepherds, is true? Uh, This is the sign. Go to Bethlehem and see. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Other heavenly beings gathered around, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. God didn't just decide to ignore evil. As Paul would say later, he's both just and the justifier. There's got to be a way into God's presence, and a price has to be paid. And even though it's a gift of grace, it's got to be received. So, peace on earth among those with whom he's pleased. Uh, We can cheat here and pause the text for just a moment. Uh, It's those that know they need to receive something. Know they don't have what they need. Know how inadequate that they are. Know that they are the poor in spirit. They are the weak. They are the ones who are without what they really need. And our culture really teaches us to hide that, doesn't it? That's sarcastic. No, our culture teaches us to pretend we've got it all together, to pretend what we have is adequate, to pretend we're doing okay, to pretend we're feeling better than we are sometimes. And then there are times when it's okay. We just got to push and, and keep moving. It's not mope around and complain all the time. But in all of that is a reality that we know we don't have what we need. But peace goes to those who tell God that. Verse 15 in chapter 2, And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Smart shepherds, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. They believe the angel. Wow, we're on the hills outside Bethlehem. Let's go to Bethlehem. See what happened, which the Lord had made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. By the way, a quick aside, uh, the manger is just the little thing with hay that was kind of a feeding trough for animals. And uh, there's a lot we don't know. And sometimes we think we know. By the way, how many wise men are there? We don't know. Scripture doesn't say three. Scripture says there was gold and frankincense and myrrh. There could have been nine and so much uh, gold and frankincense and myrrh that they had to split it up and, and carry it. Uh, read the text. It's helpful. Uh, you know, there weren't Motel 6s and, uh, or maybe what I slept in in Africa, Motel motels 2.5, when people uh, ask me uh, what it's like when I've stayed over there. Uh, we don't know for sure. The word that's translated in Uh, has a lot of meetings. It could have been a relative's house. Uh, But the reality is Bethlehem was a poor town, and 
uh, often uh, in smaller towns and smaller houses in the day, uh, the animals slept at night in the courtyard and the, the manger was there in the courtyard. In the guest room they may have been in, in somebody's house, if not Joseph's relative, uh, wouldn't hold the manger too, so uh, maybe Mary and Joseph were in the room. But one thing we do know is there were animals and there was hay and there was a manger. And the child is in this incredibly humble place. And when they saw the baby lying in the manger, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Uh, did you notice that Mary is being ministered to here by the shepherds? Because Mary's been told things by an angel, not an everyday experience in that Israeli teenager's life. She's been told what happened with Elizabeth, and she went and checked it out. And now she's had... Jesus, and she's got shepherds saying angels came to them and told her the same thing and found exactly what they had been told. And you are being told this morning, and you have a responsibility because of it. All of these witnesses from the promises of God are now witnessing to you. Verse 19, but Mary as all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Can you imagine? This is her child within her for nine months or so, and, and now in her arms. What is all this going to mean? And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They went back to keeping their sheep. We go back to whatever we have to go back to this week, but we don't forget what we've heard. Verse 21, and at the end of eight days, when he, Jesus, was circumcised, he was called, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb. Luke, led by the Holy Spirit, reminds us again, his name is Jesus. Yahweh is the Savior. Yahweh saves. And this is the unique, holy Son of God. So how do we find life, Mary, rest in hearing and doing? Everything about life changed with the Incarnation. The Incarnation, you've heard me say it before, you've read it in Scripture yourselves, that the coming of Jesus is both the ultimate judgment and the ultimate deliverance. The way of life that comes only from human flesh of human father and mother has been condemned once and for all at the cross with the Incarnation and the atoning death of Christ and His cross and resurrection. There is no ultimate hope to fulfill our longings. It's no wonder people wander around confused if they don't hear the testimony that you've just had read to you this morning. Mary rest is about hearing and then doing ever since Bethlehem. And Western culture for centuries has been running away from finding our identity in these things which have been proclaimed and 
even in finding our identity in and from others. Uh, I told you before I like to read, and uh, I won't say it slow enough to write it down. If you're interested, I'll tell you about the books. They're not simple books, but boy, they're profound. Uh, Larry Seidentop, uh, either Oxford or Cambridge, wrote Inventing the Individual, the Origins of Western Liberalism. And it's a book about how we got from finding our identity and in family and uh, we think of the Romans as being sophisticated in some ways, but if you go back to the founding of Rome, uh, even some of the statues show that they brought the dirt, those who founded Rome, uh, from where they were uh, to put it in the city. Why? Because the gods came with the earth. With the earth. Uh, they were animists, much like many of the tribal people uh, uh, in much less sophisticated places. But our identities came from the family gods and, and the earth, and uh, much of history ran that way and still runs that way. Uh, and our identity is tied to that family background, but out of the West in philosophy came this idea of the individual. And guess what? In your and my day, we have been pushing it to the wall. And Carl Truman uh, wrote an incredible book last year, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I love his subtitle, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Cultural amnesia. In other words, we've forgotten who we are and where we came from. Expressive individualism. It's what I say out of myself that is most important, nothing from outside me and the road to the sexual revolution. If you wonder why the sexual revolution and transgenderism and all of this stuff just seems to have come sweeping, it's because the foundations were being laid and moving from who we are defined in other ways to just trying to figure it out in ourselves so we can change anything and everything and technology fits within that. Figuring out who we are or who we're supposed to be Randy Newman, in the book that I've been giving you some uh, stories from uh, unlikely converts, uh, talks about uh, traditional cultures. People tend to build their identities on others, finding our identity in the group, the family, the culture, the tribe, the nation, parents, ethnic community. Uh, that can be really helpful, or it can seem at times... Uh, Maybe some of you uh, teens can uh, feel this with angst. Sometimes it can feel wonderful, and other times it feels confining, doesn't it? You know, because I'm hemmed in by things that were none of my doing, and voices all around me are telling me, I get to decide. And it can lead to insecurities and instability and guilt and shame when we don't live up to our group traditions uh, and the need to try to please an ever-changing audience as we look elsewhere. And then there's modern culture. People build their identities on themselves. Uh, Randy mentions a bumper sticker that he saw. Life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. Twists things around, doesn't it? But that can end up confusing. Which parts of yourself, which desires... Some of us are smart enough to know some of our desires are downright destructive. A mix of good and bad. Uh, what if you can't live up to the standards you set for yourself? Which self? Are we blank states, plates where things uh, are just nothing and we get to create ourselves or are things built in? Uh, 
lot of different opinions out there. And then there's the gospel. So I ask you this question. What if there really is a God who gives us an identity? That's what Christmas is about. What if there really is a God who gives us an identity that both defines us with ultimate significance and yet frees us for a lot of individual and group creativity? What if there really is a way uh, to live with fruitfulness, not only individually but in community? Uh, what if there's a God who sets the highest standards, higher than any group or any person individually can set, and yet in Christ he accepts you and loves you and forgives you and cleanses you when you fall so that you can keep growing? What if there's safety to flourish? Not, not to just live any way you want to, but when, when you can't live up to what even you wanted to live up to, there's a way to still know you're in the family and his hugs are, are there for you. A God who gives you a new reality and a new community that's better than any group or better than you yourself can create. Does that sound like an identity worth longing for in Advent? Worth seeking for? Worth finding and being found? From Randy Newman, Amy's high school guidance counselor told her she needed a lot of extracurricular activities to get accepted anywhere to college. She added the swim team, cheerleading, chess club, yearbook committee, and others. She got into her first choice college. During her first semester there, she thought she'd do better that she'd better do the same thing to pad her post-college job applications. She learned to think and plan ahead. So she added pre-professional associations, sorority, flag football team, and more. Amy, quote, all of a sudden I was just overwhelmed and realized I didn't want the rest of my life to be just like high school. Job, leadership, having authority, respect from others. Those things weren't what satisfied me or made me happy. I was just so overwhelmed. She was finding it hard to rest Mary, wasn't she? Before coming to this realization, someone invited her her freshman year to a campus Christian meeting. She went thinking that too would look good on a resume. She shrugged when Randy asked her if she'd enjoyed the meeting not remembering who spoke or what about. What she did remember was someone read from the Bible these words. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Finding your rest in God, that hit me. Because that's what I was looking for. That was a biggie. Curious how Jesus might have something to do with rest. She signed up for a Bible study and started meeting with an older Christian student. Less than two months later, she became a Christian. Ultimately, we all need the atonement. It's at the center. Christ's 
atoning sacrificial death, but God leads us to Christ for a lot of different initial reasons, doesn't he? We said it last week, God draws people to himself. We respond to God's news based on a mix of things. Some are rational and logical. Some are intellectual, some are emotional, some are social, and some are relational. Uh, in reality, we respond to everything, not just the gospel, from that mix of things. Uh, I forgot to write down the quotation, but uh, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago Karl Popper, the philosopher of science, and uh, he or someone like him uh, commented that uh, some of the biggest paradigm shifts uh, in science have come not because of logic uh, and the rationality of the science, but because some scientists died and some new guys took over. And it, and it doesn't mean that, you know, that there wasn't some basis in science there, but a lot of the practicalities of what theory came into the fore had to do with the people who evaluate based on all kinds of things, what group they were in, who their mentors were. Uh, you know, don't, don't pretend like there's this objective thing over there. The world tries to tell you that. It ain't true. None of it is all objective. And, and subjective isn't irrational. Sometimes uh, it takes the insight from heart and mind and experience to figure out what works. And, and, and we gain insight from God to how life really works. We live in a day when the spirit or spirits of the age fights against our hearing what I just said and what we've been reading. Uh, Charles Taylor in a great book, Secular Age, 2007, uh, uh, described uh, what it means to be in a secular age. He said, we've moved from uh, a pre-secular where God was in public life, regardless of the religion, to secular two where fewer people pursue that revealed spirituality privately, to secular three, a society where belief in God is viewed as only one option among many, to now secular four. Many are saying faith in God is a bad option. It's a key source of problems. Is religion even good? Some of you are being confronted with that if you're on our campuses or reading and listening to certain sources. Uh, but, the new, good news, but the news is not all bad. Randy Newman wonders if we're not uh, already moving uh, past all those seculars to what is almost a minus secular six, where the emptiness of this trying to say that life is nothing but material and secular is crushing people. And Randy says he's got a number of pastors who call him from time to time amazed at the people uh, that are just finding his church, uh, the pastor's church on Yelp, and just showing up. Because they know there's got to be something more than what the world's telling them. This thing's bigger than they're telling them. But like Adam and Eve in the garden, it's still easy to hide, isn't it? Pleasing self or pleasing God. Uh, it's easier to struggle less with pleasing God because uh, I can at least pretend he doesn't exist or that I don't care about him. Uh, I have more trouble when I don't live up to my own standards, don't I? Because my standards tell me uh, there are standards. There's something there. There's some kind of meaning there. And, and I don't know about you, but I have tr more trouble hiding from myself than I do hiding from God. And, and I really get into trouble when I don't like myself. I can scream at God and uh, things can go on for a little while, but when I'm really screaming 
in harsh ways about me, I can start going downhill pretty fast. With whom am I pleased? With whom is God pleased? We've already said with the humble. With what groups or individuals uh, are you pleased? And are you looking as honestly as you can at the lasting fruit and not falling into groupthink uh, or what C.S. Lewis called presentism where the new is always the highest valued? One last story from Randy. A young man named Roger had a steady girlfriend. He was a starter on the high school basketball team. He was student body president, tall, good-looking, confident. But his girlfriend uh, called his house one day, and ran Roger's uh, mother told her, quote, Roger doesn't live here anymore. girlfriend what she knew Roger's father had left the family for another woman when Roger was nine but now alcohol and drugs had so distorted his mother's life that she told Roger she couldn't handle having him there anymore and she booted him out of the house when he was a junior in high school he slept in his truck he showered with friends slept on couches sometimes slept in the truck, homeless for a month, his marijuana-addicted, disinterested father now in another town. And Roger's uh, girlfriend's family, because he was dating their daughter, heard about what had happened. And their family of five uh, invited him into their small house and turned the den, the biggest room in the house, into a bedroom for him. They were Christians. He wasn't. His experiences with church had seen hypocrites who seemed uh, not to want to think intellectually uninformed, didn't like questions. His new family, he called them that 20 years later when Randy talked to him. He wasn't one of the interviewees. Um, his new family uh, were Christians, and he decided to go to church with them, not because he believed, but he just thought they were doing so much for him. Maybe he ought to be courteous. And they and their church family were different. They were patient with their questions to him. Uh, they pointed him to C.S. Lewis and others for answers. And uh, the recurrent theme that they taught him was this. Everything in this world will let you down. Nothing will ever be enough. But if you know Christ, he'll be enough. He'll add meaning to everything else. And that theme began to play in his heart and head. Roger told Randy that he moved from unbelief to belief when he was taking his girlfriend, the family's daughter, to his senior prom. A friend loaned him a Porsche to drive her to the prom. And he says he was driving through breathtaking scenery with the girl to the prom, and he thought if everything goes right, this is as good as it's going to get. <coughs> this could be my life. But then he paused and added, but then I thought, is that it? Is that all there is? And he said, it came 
altogether from me at that moment. And soon after that, I told my family, yeah, I believe. I wept when I read that yesterday. I was typing it into my notes. I said, oh, would that be the way we at UPC think? We look at the best things that could ever be ours, and we go, needs Jesus added to it. It's just not enough. And because we look at ourselves that way, we look at outsiders that way. Roger said, looking back uh, at that family, uh, these weren't culturally outstanding people. People wouldn't have been impressed with them, but they'd been used to help change his life and others too. And he stayed with them for almost a year. They helped him with academic stability, and they helped him find and then to be able to attend a really fine college. He and their daughter broke up. But afterwards, uh, his parent, her parents told Roger, this is your home. You can come back anytime. Randy says he still does, decades later, with his wife and their two kids. We named after the parents in that family. Because they led him towards Jesus. Doesn't God have amazing ways of inviting and welcoming? Some cause fear, some cause us in our weakness uh, to pause, uh, to own our need and our desperation, and some uh, are as unthreatening as a newborn baby in a manger. But when God breaks in, and if he's not broken into your life yet, uh, when he breaks in, hear, listen, and do what's appropriate. And if he's already broken in, uh, may you see the bigness of God and shake with fear again and let him comfort you. I end with Mary's words, Lord, I am your servant. Do with me according to your word.